Evening, Dan. Evening, Omar. It's been a couple of weeks, hasn't it, since we chatted? It has been. A fair bit has always happened, as always tends to happen in, in football. Managerial changes, club takeovers, new rules. Which never ends, does it? What are the new rules? Uh, oh, uh, is that Premier League stuff, or are you thinking of something else? The yeah, the five substitutions with the um, yeah, with the with the IFAB um, changing that. I also I also read uh, IFAB rejected um, the idea of having twenty five minute half times, which uh, which I think was a positive move. That that bit of news that came out this week. I was thinking also about the new the, the Newcastle commercial deal, um, uh, sort of freezing whilst um, the Premier League gets going with its decision on related party transactions as well. I mean, literally, I mean that that doesn't sound as sexy to be fair. But now I say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, it's just constant, isn't it? Maybe we'll get a little break at Christmas, but, uh, but yeah, all all interesting. Um, you're in Lisbon this week. Is it nice and warm there? It's pouring down. <laughs> to know, uh, Omar. So yeah, it was brilliant. I'm, I'm, I'm kindly invited to speak with them by Web Summit. So um, I've done a couple of um, sessions on their sports track and panel, which has been yeah, brilliant. So chatting with um, I'm just name dropping here more than anything else. Um, yeah, sort of Saul Campbell and uh, Louis Sahar on some on some cool stuff as well. And um, yeah, it's a great city and met lots of interesting people. So I'm, I feel like I'm really um, yeah multitasking today with uh, with plenty of stuff, and it's great to chat to you always. Oh, very good. You're, uh, we've got a celebrity, you're our celebrity in our midst at least. I'm glad you found the time to to chat. Um, well, so I'll chat. do my best. <laughs> yeah, let's let's chat. It's been a lot of takeover news. Um, I mean, I remember when we you probably first started chatting about takeovers on on the podcast about a year ago now, um, and there's really been a kind of space of activity. Um, and a lot of uh, reported activity in um, in the last few few weeks and months. Um, one that's already happened is is the Wrexham takeover, which I know has been publicly reported. You were involved in. Um, obviously, like is received lots of attention um, for what it is. Obviously, the, the taking of a national league club. What's what's the story there? What's um, you know what's the ambition? Is it is it uh, is it genuinely kind of something that the, the club is kind of excited and ambitious about, or is this kind of like a a bit of a kind of story for 2021 and it will, it will fade away next year. Well, I hope not is the truth. Um, yes, yeah, so we were acting for um, the supporters trust in, um, in selling to um, the the guys. And although I obviously didn't get the chance to, to meet them or, or see them just yet, hopefully it'll be great to get down to um, a game sooner rather than later. But, you know, I think, I think what I found fascinating about that um, deal generally um, is, you know, on the whole, um, the, the 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 takeovers that seem to happen, um, you know, especially high profile ones, usually happen as an intersection between high profile individuals and high profile clubs. And it was almost that mismatch in a way of really high profile individuals and non high profile club, which then really got everybody talking because in a way that's the, the lack of or rather asymmetry um, in it, um, you know, and, and I think that's what's caught everyone's attention, what's made it a bit more romantic about why, you know, um, you know, Wrexham can um, punch above its weight, can get TikTok as a, a sponsor, can start selling shirt sales, can really just go into overdrive on some of the commercial elements. But ultimately, in the end, they've got to be able to perform well enough on the pitch and um, uh, and get into, uh, you know, the the higher leagues. And in time, you know, um, Rob and Ryan have said that they want to, you know, ultimately get into the Premier League. That's the 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 ideal. So, you know, why not? But as you can see with, you know, other ownership groups, you know, Gary Neville's and Salford, they're, you know, pumping huge resources in for 
a League Two club and it's not a straightforward you know, proposition in the end. So um, I, I think the first thing is everyone's intrigued. Um, I think there's always a bit of schadenfreude, which is, oh, now they've got celebrity owners, then, uh, you know, some want them to fall flat on their face while others are actually feeling, you know, quite positive about, you know, the... Um, the, what they can bring to to offer, and that's obviously in different types of content, which is you know documentary series, you know behind the scenes stuff. But ultimately, you know, as I said, you you know better than I. Um, it comes down to you know trying to get um, good talent on the pitch and, and rising up the league. So it's certainly a fascinating one, and one that you know you already start going to see those documentaries coming from the behind the scenes look on. You know how Wrexham can can do, and we saw it with the Salford Salford on. I think it was Sky over the last few years, and I found those types of documentaries just just great. Really, you know, you get to understand the personalities, you get to understand you know the playing staff, you get to understand the managerial changes or stuff and, um, that you guys wouldn't necessarily see or have access to. You know, at, um, at other teams. Yeah, no, it'll be it'll be really interesting. I think obviously the documentary pieces um, uh, they've obviously really taken off in the last uh, few years or so, and I think. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of it'll be really fascinating to see. I think that non-league level, which which I know a lot of fans just don't get to see or appreciate. Understand. I think the interesting thing for me, I always look at it obviously from the sporting perspective. Um, and investing in the national league, I think, is a real challenge um, because of the way that promotion works at at the national league. There's just two promotion places uh, for the 23-24 teams. Twenty-three this year with. Um, uh, I can't remember who dropped out, but the 23 teams this, this year um, to get promoted, obviously only one automatically. Uh, and that's why you get, I think, a lot of spending um, for teams in, in that division to try and get out of it. And Salford obviously were successful. Um, but what happens is that you end up getting this kind of quite big overlap between <clears throat> the quality of the National League and quality of League Two because you're not essentially relegating enough teams each year and you're not promoting enough teams each year. And if you're investing in the National League, it can be, um, it, you know, you can be stuck in there for, for a number of years and there are some some really big clubs really in the National League you've got Stockport County you've got Notts County Grimsby Town you know, Chesterfield Wrexham obviously a big club um, you know Dagenham Redbridge Torquay United these are all you know in many respects you'd consider them to be um, EFL clubs and, and the National League more competing to try and get up I think is um, is, is a reflection of the challenges of, of that league so um, I th- what I hope is that the the club you know Obviously, performs performs well. It'd be a great story if they can get into into the EFL, but you don't want it to be a to be an unsustainable um, you know challenge because I think there are a lot of issues with sustainability at that level, and, and I think the promotion relegation situation tends to exacerbate that. And then, yeah, com- completely agree, Omar. And I think then, if we looked at it in turn with you know the deal that's rumored on the table for for Hull. Um, and we turn to a slightly different point, but again, it's all aligned, um, which is to do with, you know, ultimately new owners coming in, better business practices, better on-field decisions, better recruitment and everything else that comes with it comes down to, um, you know, hopefully improving the the level and league status of a club, but ultimately driving um, greater valuation by term, by, by, I guess, in sense of the, the, the asset itself. And so, you know, it was reported at least in the last few days that you know Hull are looking for somewhere in the region of twenty million pounds for, um, for for the club with possible lifts if they were to get back into the the Premier League within a particular period of time. And you know, you look turn back the clock three ish years or so, a little bit more when you know they just dropped out of the the Premier League and um and maybe went even in there in the Premier League. And you know, the, the reported offering level there was in the 120, 130 million pound range. So, firstly, I find it. 
obviously really interesting how a couple of um, poor seasons performance wise can obviously hugely affect valuation. Um, and and secondly, that the opposite is also true, which is the opportunity of a lower valuation still doesn't necessarily mean that those clubs are going to be able to get back at the leagues quickly and um, and in, inflate those prices to make it um, you know a good business deal for everyone concerned. Yeah, exactly. It's incredible that, that drop in uh, evaluation. We've got um, Surya who's uh, requested to speak. So I'm going to invite him onto the stage. Surya, did you have a question for us? Did you um, have a comment on? on Wrexham or any of the takeovers that, that are taking place? One of the question is, in case uh, we are also talking about the mismatch in the profile of the owner and also the club, as we have seen in Germany when Red Bull purchased Leipzig and they were promoted, I think, four levels before coming to this. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a massive success story, I suppose. Um, and... Red, Red Bull, I guess. I, I think they obviously wanted to try and build a club up from scratch in many ways, and and they did that, although albeit with a lot of animosity in German football. I think um, the general feeling amongst German fans towards Leipzig is, is not wholly positive. Um, but yeah, it's it's been successful. I think the the benefit they had probably in German football, is, which uh, say may not exist in the national league, is that mobility between leagues. You know, teams can get two and a half promotion spaces. Um, from between the Bundesliga's, I think even down to third league and regional league. At regional league level, obviously, there's loads and loads of teams that that can be go up to um, to the third league, and I think that that mobility is key. And obviously, they had a huge amount of money to, to put into the club, which is uh, which has certainly benefited them. Yeah, can I ask Omar just then a question on that? Which is, you know, I think obviously a few years ago, and again, this was sort of reported that one of the reasons why Hull's valuation was obviously greater was no doubt. Um, you know, parachute payments probably and um, specifically transfer fee monies being payable. It might have been on Maguire stuff. It might have been on Andy Robinson, Robinson or others. Um, so, you know, you're going to get particular monies on so long as they haven't you know, secured again, uh, sort of financed um, in advance. You know, what, what uh, the reason I ask you is because obviously we work together on a variety of different takeovers. And I, I sort of know the answer to a degree on this. But what I find fascinating about the work that you guys do at 21st Group is um, that sort of pl- more than just plugging, but plugging into the valuation piece around um, on-pitch playing capabilities, capacities, and you know whether there's good up-and-coming young players coming through, whether there's going to have to be a real refresh with large investment being made. And I guess that's one of the core, to degree, core pieces of work that I know you've got involved with over a, um, a number of years, which is that sort of on-pitch valuation piece. Yeah, I think um, there's often a kind of conception in many ways um, when takeovers happen around the valuation of the club and the valuation of the, of the players. And so we take we take West Ham, for example, the the reported valuation for the club is around 600, 700 million. Our view of the valuation of the players is around 300 million. But I think it's really important to completely separate those two things out because it's not like you could go into West Ham and then sell all the players and then the value of the club would be all that cash that you've got that you've been able to um, to generate from the sale of players, obviously you wouldn't have a squad, and, and effectively the value of the club would be you know close to zero. You'd have no players to play. So it's the 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 kind of player valuation market is entirely separate into its own thing. And I think the the club valuation market therefore is much more complex because it's not there's not a huge amount of liquidity. You haven't got loads of transactions that are happening all the time, um, and so it's very hard to get a benchmark of what the kind of intrinsic value i suppose in many ways is of football clubs and look that happens in in all industries but i think with with football clubs in particular you've got these real spiky revenues 
um, which lead to no one really knowing, you know, how much a club is, is worth. And I think with Hull um, being bottom end of uh, of the championship and the relegation zone of the championship, 20 million does seem to be the kind of going rate, as you, if you like, at the moment. Um, whereas if you're in the bottom end of the Premier League, it's probably closer to 150, 200 million um, top end of the championship, you know, probably somewhere midway between those those two. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, people use... Um, kind of uh, revenue multipliers. Um, if you apply that in football, the revenue multipliers, if you take a club at the bottom end of the Premier League and a valuation around 200 million, that's a revenue multiplier of around 1.3, 1.5. It's, it's not very big in the context of what revenue multipliers you see in other countries, which which are other countries, other industries, which tends to be kind of four, five, ten in some cases, depending on, on the industry and the type of revenue that, that they have. So it, it's clear that there's a massive um, discount in football and that's why I think it's proved hugely attractive to American investors recently because if you're investing in an NFL team or NBA team, you are paying that on valuations of billions um, now, uh, whereas you know these football clubs that have arguably as big, if not bigger brands as many NFL and, and NBA teams uh, are trading at an absolute fraction of that. And that's why it's generated all this um, is interest in particular in the last few years. Um, but there's no exact science to it for sure. Omar, I was just going to ask one more point on that as well, which I find, um, you know, the fascinating overlay of that, which is, you know, obviously, um, you know, American franchise owners coming into European football in particular, um, you know, discussing the relegation point and the the, the Champions League uplifts um, or the particular Premier League uplifts that they're getting modelling to a certain, you know, um, um, position in the in the Premier League, for example, you know how much you know in your experience as well have you seen whereby you know the the valuation modelling um, uses relegation as a w- with a discount effectively in the same sense as you know we've seen recently IPL franchises go for huge numbers simply because there is that stability of centralised revenue generation from broadcasting rights and other types of commercial activities and simply because you know those owners know that there's going to be X number in five ten years regardless of of, you know their effective performance and you know that that's what we see a lot in um you know english football which is it scares the hell out of a lot of people simply because just like we're talking about valuation you know the valuation of liverpool is somewhat out of thought disproportionately dependent on the likes of klopp and, and michael edwards to a degree now if those individuals are leaving inside uh, three years does that um you know effectively potentially put a discount on a team like liverpool simply because of the the you know the two individuals that have had stellar reputations and experiences over the last few years yeah it's um, yeah key person risk is kind of massive in football not just front office and manager but but obviously players as well um yeah i, I think the, the relegation piece is always priced in and that's why you get those multiples that are well under two um for clubs at the bottom end of of the Premier League and, and multiples that are, you know, in excess of four, five, six um, for for clubs that are safe, um, you know, from that and, and potentially competing in, in European football. Um, so you have the kind of double whammy effect of, um, you know, clubs having lower revenues and a, a lower multiple, which really stretches out the, the valuation um, of clubs in, in English and in European football. Um, I think one of the intriguing aspects of, of balance, of weighing up that relegation risk is, seeing it in the long term and the analogy that that we often use is is essentially russian roulette so if you've got um yeah i don't know let's say a 10 percent chance of of being relegated um this season um that's obviously a 10 percent chance of going down this season 90 percent chance that you're more likely than not to stay up and that, and a lot of people i think investing in football would be comfortable with that risk the the interesting thing is obviously when that 
risk is kind of multiplies up over the season. So you might only have a 10% chance of, of going down this season, which means a 90% chance of staying up. But that gets multiplied over multiple years as you assess the risk. So the, the odds of staying in the top, in the Premier League, as an example, is not uh, 90% over the long term. It's 90% times 90% times 90% times 90% times 90% and so on. And you tend to find in that over a kind of you know, six to 10 year horizon, most clubs are odds on to go down. Um, so even a club like West Ham, interestingly, um, obviously in, in the news this week uh, on the transaction, if if we sit here and we think, okay, West Ham, they're doing really well at the moment. They might, you know, if they can crack Champions League football, then maybe we're talking about something else. But let's assume that they're roughly a mid-table team. In the long term, if their risk of relegation is, I don't know, anywhere between 5 and 10%, then at some point we would expect them to, to go down in the next kind of 15, 20 years, just through kind of sheer randomness that exists in football even if they're performing like a mid-table team they can always just have a bad season get a few injuries and, and end up getting relegated uh, and that has actually happened to, to West Ham as we know the spent time in the championship so I, I think that can be often a challenge for um, investors to, to kind of um, you know get their heads around in many ways um, because it is you know it is like playing Russian roulette even if even if it's like a, a 20 barrel at some point um, you know it will go off um, and it's just it's just a case of hoping it's uh, well, hoping it's uh, after you sell the club rather than before. Indeed, and I think one of the things, at least we're going to just touch on on West Ham very briefly on the takeover side, was that it looked like I'm going to try and pronounce the guy's name wrong. Probably Daniel Kratinsky, I think his um, name is that he was going to buy a, um, a minority stake in West Ham with West Ham possibly valued, I think it was between six to seven hundred fifty million pounds, which is that's not six pounds, that's six hundred to seven hundred fifty million pounds. Um, but that um, Sullivan and Gold have uh, an agreement with the, the London Authority or whichever the governmental organisation is that they have an agreement with for the London Stadium, that if they were to sell West Ham for over £300 million before the end of 2023, I believe it's been reported, that the, the, the government agency would have uh, would receive 20% on the uplift, um, which obviously is a huge amount, which might be the reason why a minority stake is being bought now with the possible um, dr- dragging of the rest of the the shareholding to happen um, in the next couple of years on but you know spending a huge amount of money which is probably what it would be on a minority stake um, is actually uh, without any type of um, you know subsequent agreement to to up the rest of the shares is usually quite a risky business because really you might get a a board seat but you're not really going to get control or that much influence when um, you know the the majority shareholders can still almost outvote you on almost all um, other matters so that I think that's an interesting one to be uh, looking out for whenever that decision or transaction happens um, because um, it's actually a relatively unusual one for someone to spend significant money but not have that much in the short term. And, and I think um, it's, it's interesting in the context of, you know, West Ham are doing really well at the moment. And again, you get, these things get reported that they, they're often in the works for a lot, as you and I know, Dan, they're often in the works for a very long period of time, um, often you know, over 12 months. Um, and so this isn't a, a reaction to, to West Ham doing well uh, and that can make it even harder to land on the valuation because they are doing so well at the moment and risk of relegation seems so low that you know does that add another 15 20 percent on on the price um so it it is a really interesting um interesting club west ham have obviously been um reported on and, and there's been various parties that have said they've been interested or have kind of entered periods of exclusivity or periods of due diligence with with the club and hasn't gone anywhere potentially on, on the valuation um i i've said this before um possibly even to yourself, Dan, but, but certainly to other people. I, I think in many ways, 
there's a potential for the Premier League to become a de facto Super League. When you look at the investment that's gone into Newcastle, the investment that could go into West Ham here, um, you know, there, there are other wealthy backers in, in the league that haven't perhaps uh, spread their wings as much um, yet. So the, the owners of Aston Villa, as an example, and I think you could be in a situation where you've got, you know, 10 clubs who are essentially in the top 15 most kind of um, powerful clubs in terms of financial might in, in Europe. Um, you know, apart from the likes of maybe a um, uh, maybe a, a PSG or a, a Juventus and Real Madrid Barcelona, of course, um, and Bayern Munich. So it's in many ways, if you're a fan of the Premier League, then it's kind of exciting to have, you know, potentially huge chunk of the world's best players playing in the league given the given the amount of um the, the owners coming into it um but but if you're if you're sitting there in other leagues and it's, it's potentially quite daunting i think just very briefly before we touch on um the other five subs topic that we're going to briefly mention is i think that leads to a really interesting you know short to medium term viewpoint which is you know we see uefa possibly switching from a break even ffp model to some type of luxury tax modeling perhaps at least that's what's coming out of the reports fascinating to see whether the premier league if the majority of those clubs are possibly owned by owners with very very deep pockets to put it mildly whether actually that same type of modeling will align with what uefa are possibly doing because obviously the break-even criteria really impacts significantly on owners with deep pockets that want to invest majorly that have the money can put it in as a bond or whatever else it might be but actually can't because of these pretty relatively restricted restrictive ffp or cost control provisions so watch this space for for that because some would argue that the Newcastle owners coming in is actually a very good time because of potential FFP relaxation or indeed, you know, quite in, you know important structural reform. So um, let's see on that one. And just with a few minutes to go, Omar, I know we were talking about it briefly. We, you know, we talked a while back about the five subs rule and, and the sort of counterintuitive nature of it to a degree. It looks like it's um, here to stay. What do you think? Yeah, coming in off a long run up, run up here, I, I, uh, I was really, uh, I tweeted about this I think last week, I was really disappointed and troubled by the general direction of um, of this because it, to me, in many ways, it's it's uh, a lot a lot of what the, the rule changes that IFAB have made in the last um, 10 years or so have been really positive um, for the game, they've helped the game flow, helped technical players, helped kind of, um, you know, teams build from the back and, and so on. Uh, but this one feels very much a um, treat, treating symptoms rather than causes um, and when I say that, I'm talking about um, the issue of kind of player workload. So, you know, clubs have become used to playing five subs, had absolutely no issue with, with five subs in the aftermath of, of the pandemic. Uh, I think it was a really unique situation. And, and at the back end of that 1920 season, absolutely no issue at all. Um, but then it, it became for, you know, even... Uh, and I sort of accepted it at the start of the 2021 season as well. I know the Premier League didn't adopt it, but other leagues did because you, you're dealing with a congested calendar. But we're now back to calendar. Um, and it's felt that five subs is required in order to help players rest and rotate. And I, I, I just think the issue isn't kind of player fatigue, or the, the issue isn't trying to kind of treat the fact that players are playing. Sorry, the issue isn't, um, you know, trying to help players rest and so on through substitutions. It's the fact that, you know, many of them are playing 65, 70 games a season and, and they need that just unsustainable. Uh, and we've seen all the reports around the, the calendar. Um, with FIFA reforms and, and other competitions looking to get a greater share of the calendar. And ultimately, everyone's kind of using the volume of matches as a means to, to grow their their share of kind of eyeballs within the, the football, you know, um, football market, if you like. Um, and there's no 
consideration being given to the quality of those games, the, the jeopardy of those games, the extent to which fans care uh, about those games as well. Uh, it's just piled on and on and on. And, and this five subs thing is, is trying to treat that in many ways, but I say it's treating a symptom. And, um, and in my, I can see a scenario and I, I honestly, you know, uh, I, I can honestly see this happening in, in 15, 20 years. You've got rolling subs where uh, it's a bit like the NBA, where I, I was having a look at, um, at uh, like Steph Curry's minutes and he plays something like, I want to say like 70 minutes a, a season, 70, like 70 percent of, sorry, 70 percent of, of minutes a season, 70 percent of minutes per game. Um, whereas the likes of kind of Messi, um, Ronaldo, Mbappe, you know, tend to play, tend to play ninety, ninety-five, um, close to one hundred percent. And I think football should try and protect that as much as possible. I think the moment you int- start introducing rolling subs, you've got a completely different sport, special teams, whatever it is. And and I can genuinely see that um, being the direction of travel under the premise of of player welfare. Um, you know, if, if I had it my way, I'll, I'll finish on this. If I had it my way, I actually think I, I would limit it to two subs. Um, I, I think it's very rare that you have. Um, three players off injured in, in a game I would have two subs and it's really about you know the, the coach putting the team out on the pitch and adapting to that when um, you know with the 11 that he has out there in the game I think that's a more pure form of the sport in many ways and yeah I, I it's, it's a it's one of the few kind of rule changes that I've seen apart from the away goals rule which, which everyone knows I, I bang on about all the time um, it's one of the few rule changes that I am um, quite disappointed about Can I ask you on that point then so are you fundamentally against it because um, it reduces or increases competitive balance, i.e. because we talked about it last time, didn't we, about this whole quite strange issue of, you know, bigger squads feeling like it benefits the bigger teams with having to be able to take more substitutions. Are you fundamentally against it for some, some other competitive balance reason or is it simply that the bigger clubs can hoard better players um, and, and therefore because a lot of teams don't make clubs and all the rest of it, that actually it's a bit of a misnomer? Yeah, so I I don't totally buy the idea, at least in the short term, that it favours clubs because it ultimately depends on how big the gap is between your starting left back and your sub left back, your starting central midfielder, and your, and your sub central midfielder. So even though Man City have better substitute central midfielders than um, I don't know, Leeds United, it doesn't mean that the delta is necessarily the gap between the starter and the sub is um, is smaller at Man City. It might be that. Leeds are very good. You know, they take off Calvin Phillips. Whoever they bring on is is almost as good as him. Neither is good. Neither are as good as a Rodri, let's say. But but the the, the delta is what's important. Uh, I think if you look at the analysis that we've done, it isn't necessarily the case. A club like Liverpool, for example, have actually got quite a big delta between their starting eleven and the bench. Sometimes the players they bring off bring off the bench aren't as good as their uh, as their starting eleven players. So I don't think it's necessarily in the short term competitive balancing. I think in the long term you might find a, a Man City going well. Actually, it pays to invest in our bench here, and that's where they do have an advantage. Uh, but I think in the short term probably not. It's more around. I think it fundamentally changes the the complexion of the sport. And and for me, and this is purely subjective, right? But for me, it's really around you know putting an eleven out on the field and and having eleven versus eleven rather than almost squads take on each other, um, which to me is a completely different thing um, and a different sport altogether. Great chatting to you as always, Paul, and um, some fascinating opinions. And uh, hopefully we can get back to chatting again this time next week. All right. Cheers, Dan. Enjoy the rest of your stay in Lisbon. Cheers, Paul. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Done Deal, 
an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers, and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.